good afternoon, everybody. My name's Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at LSE, and it's a very great pleasure and honour uh, to do three things in very short order. First, I'm pleased to extend a very warm LSE welcome to everybody here in the old theatre and to all of those joining us online. And there will be a chance for all of you online or in the theatre to ask questions later. Second, I'm delighted to welcome to LSE Hans Rosling, Professor of International Health at the Karolinska Institute, and of course Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates really is a person that needs no introduction. Everybody will know of Bill from his work with Microsoft and more recently with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I trust, though, that many of you will share my own view that Bill and Melinda Gates, along with their fellow American Warren Buffett, are tremendous ambassadors for the notion that private wealth can and should be deployed for global health and development improvements. Bill, we're delighted that you're with us here today at the school and to share some thoughts on your annual letter. And we're particularly pleased that you're going to take the same stage as your father, who was in conversation here in 2009 with our then-director, Howard Davis. Lastly, it's my pleasure to ask Alicia London uh, to replace me here on stage. Alicia is an alumna of the school's Department of International Development, which is just one of a large number of LSE academic units that are focused on economic growth, state building, and public service delivery in late developing countries. We also have the DFID-funded International Growth Centre and starting this year a programme for African leadership. LSE students are trained to understand the causes of things and not to simplify complex social problems. At the same time, we hope our students find inspiration in the commitment to social action and social justice that was flagged by the founders of the school, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, and by a number of the previous directors of the school, including, of course, William Beveridge, who many people see as the founder of the welfare state in the UK. Alicia London is the UK country director of the Global Poverty Project, which is sponsoring this Global Poverty Ambassador launch. And I know myself that she is a very fine ambassador for everything that is good about the LSE student body. So, Alicia, please welcome to the stage. One of my dreams is to see a world where people don't have to lack anything, where every child goes to school, where everyone can have access to medical services, where there's no difference between a man and a woman in terms of participation. It's a world where there is no poverty anymore. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, and thank you to the London School of Economics for hosting us here today. Um, it's, a, it's a place which is very dear to my heart and a world-class institution. I couldn't think of a better place to launch the 2012 Global Poverty Ambassadors from here. The Global Poverty Project is a movement of individuals passionately committed to seeing an end to extreme poverty within our lifetime, the, the kind of world that Mercy was just speaking about. I, I wanted to take the time for all of us to stop and begin this event with Mercy's vision. 
Because this isn't just our vision, this is a vision that is held and is being driven by people all around the world, led by those living in extreme poverty and fighting for change. And we believe one of the best things we can do is to activate citizens to become more effective in understanding the causes of these things and what they can do in response. I also wanted to start with a reminder that this vision isn't just a big idea. Tackling extreme poverty is not just an idea, it's a reality in the making. And this is something we'll hear from our two speakers here today. It's an absolute honour to have brought together today two of, I think, some of the most visionary people fighting extreme poverty and thinking about this around the world. Obviously, Mr Bill Gates and Professor Hans Rosling. Thank you for making the time to be here. Um, just one more plug as well for everyone looking in online from home. We want to encourage you, even if you're in the audience here today, to take out your Microsoft software-enabled devices, of course, <laughs> um, turn them on and participate in this discussion. Just like ending extreme poverty, this is something we don't want people just to observe. I want you to be on your phones, tweeting, commenting, and getting this happening um, all around the world. Now, these are really big and complex issues, but progress is being made. And we think one of the best things we can do is understand these issues in more depth. And in 2008, the Global Poverty Project team really thought about how we could do this best. And so coming together with some of the world-leading experts on these issues, including Hans as a content advisor, we developed the 1.4 billion reasons presentation. This presentation, developed and presented by live presenters, explains the reality of extreme poverty, the progress that is being made, how we can come overcome barriers like fighting corruption and tackling disease, and what is it that we can all do as an individual. It's been extraordinary. Hundreds of thousands of people have heard about it. 70,000 people have seen it, decided to take more effective actions and are joining us on campaigning for more effective aid, better aid for increased governance and fighting corruption and ethical, more ethical trade in our world. And as we were launching the year ahead, I sat down with the Global Poverty Project team and we were thinking about what's the best way to take this message even further we realise that the biggest power that we have is when person to person we talk, we engage, we think about issues and we challenge each other. This can happen online, as it is today, or it can happen live in person. So what we decided to do was to train up some of the leading voices across the United Kingdom to deliver the 1.4 billion reasons presentation in their communities. We have 70 of the first Global Poverty Ambassadors joining us here today, and really this event is about you. This is something that the ambassadors will be delivering the presentation. They'll be campaigning for change, joining us around the world um, in the next year, especially to uh, leverage an additional $100 million campaigning for fighting childhood diseases. They'll be leading the movement as we live below the line this May, where 20,000 people around the world will choose to live on a pound a day for five days to raise awareness of the 1.4 billion people that live on a pound a day for everything, every day. And they'll be raising awareness of the UN International Year of Cooperatives and the importance that the cooperatives have in fighting extreme poverty. Now, in launching this initiative, as I finish up, um, I want to pay particular thanks to the cooperative group 
this is something that honestly wouldn't have happened without them. And, and as an organisation that is passionate about extreme poverty, there I don't think is any other partner to be launching this. They're a leading voice and a leading business on fighting extreme poverty through ethical trade, ethical finance, and supporting organisations like ours that campaign for change. So thank you to the cooperative. And as we finish, I wanted to draw attention to the ambassadors sitting in the room. In a minute, we'll have a chance to meet them. They are extraordinary young people, people from businesses, faith communities all across the UK. We'll have a chance to meet them more in a, in a moment. Um, we bring one of them up on here on stage. But for the meantime, before we do, I'd like to introduce you to more of the team, more of the vision, and more of the impact of the Global Poverty Project. I remember when we first began, it, uh, it felt like this impossible, totally impossible dream. You know, we were just a small group of us with no money and no office and just this, this big idea to tackle one of the greatest challenges of our time. And, uh, you know, what's happened in the last month is a true miracle. We created a presentation on the end of extreme poverty, a roadmap and a vision for our generation. We delivered it all over Australia. It took off from Australia to New Zealand, to the UK, to the USA and Canada. We opened up offices. People began to bike across their country to share the story of the end of extreme poverty. They jumped in vans and toured. They threw crazy parties. They made activism fun. We did experiential campaigns and lived under $1.50 per day in food to raise money for the extreme poor. We dreamed and began to execute on a massive public awareness event during Chogham when world leaders were in Australia. We were thrown a concert in Perth around the end of polio. We launched a massive campaign with viral videos, door-to-door -door relationships and petitions that skyrocketed in numbers. We quantified the desire of our generation to end this disease. Celebrities began to reach out. Academics blogged, we did photo shoots, sold shirts and created installations to point to the bigger picture. And together with our partners, it worked. We began to sit down with powerful people, politicians, economists, rock stars, and our partners on the ground, to draw out plans for our next big move, to shake the dust on extreme poverty. We realise that many of the reasons that extreme poverty persists because of our actions and even our beliefs. That's why we're taking our campaigning to the next level. Thousands will be living below the line, promoting fairer trade, campaigning to end polio and ensuring that the UK government keeps its promises to the world's poor. We're going person to person, community to community, educating, inspiring and activating people to campaign on extreme poverty. This is a movement led by individuals in schools, businesses, faith groups and communities. In 2012, over 100 global poverty ambassadors will be leading voices in their communities, presenting the groundbreaking 1.4 billion reasons and mobilising their peers to take action. We're thrilled to be partnering with the Cooperative on the Global Poverty Ambassador Program. 2012 is the UN-backed International Year of Cooperatives. The Cooperative are doing more than ever to tackle global poverty through cooperative support, ethical trade, ethical finance and campaigning. Together we are equipping leaders across the UK to stand up and say, we can be the generation that sees an end to extreme poverty. This is just the beginning.
Now, in applying to be Global Poverty Ambassadors, all the ambassadors here today have taken inspiration from, from our special guest, Mr Bill Gates, and they've written their own annual letter, which we'll be hearing more from Bill a bit later. What I'd like to do now is very quickly, we're running a little bit behind time, um, is to invite Tom Stevenet up onto the stage. He's one of our youngest, uh, most passionate ambassadors. And Tom, what I'd love to do now is just ask you to share very quickly, what's your vision for the year ahead? And what do you think are things we should be focusing on? Thanks, Alicia. A world without absolute poverty is a global world which has taken full advantage of the opportunities on hand to this, the first of the digital generations. Just imagine, if you will, I wake up, I shower, I get dressed, and as I'm eating my cereal, I Skype Nufun Fatty in Senegal to discuss how the shear butter processing plant is going following the microfinance loan which I sent to them. This is the imminent future. It's about joining together as partners for progress. Because my vision is that we fight, we fight extreme poverty together. And I see um, information technology as the future for this. And that's why I really hope that information technology will, will um, help us um, in the future. And that's my vision to Bill Gates. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Tom. I really hope everyone gets a chance to meet all of the ambassadors. And now it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the stage to introduce our special guests and to moderate today's discussions, the co-founder and the global CEO of the Global Poverty Project. His name is Hugh Evans and he's been a campaigner on extreme poverty issues since the age of 14. Founded the Oak Tree Foundation, was a leading voice on the Make Poverty History movement in Australia. He's leading our activities in the United States um, and he's flown over spe specifically from New York for this event. And so please, would I welcome to the stage Mr. Hugh Evans. Well, thank you, Alicia, for that very kind introduction, and welcome to everyone. I am so excited about the Global Poverty Ambassador Program that we're here to launch today. I think this program has tremendous potential to push forward the movement to end extreme poverty. You could see when Tom was speaking, his passion was so evident and he just wants to get out there and do things. I think that that kind of commitment is exactly the kind of commitment we need to have advocates right around the world. To provide critical insight into the movement to end extreme poverty and what has been done on the ground, I'd like you, if you could please join with me in welcoming to the stage two very special people, Bill Gates and Professor Hans Rosling. Let's make them feel welcome. It really is a tremendous honour to have these two visionaries amongst us and to be able to share their wisdom and insight with us. Bill, I've always been deeply inspired by your tremendous humility and your powerful impact and it's been an honour to work with you and your team at the Foundation in the past year on the End of Polio campaign, and we're very excited that you're here today, and we look forward to hearing your remarks shortly. First up today, it is my great pleasure to introduce you to a good friend and advisor of the Global Poverty Project, Professor Hans Roslin. Hans is the Professor of International Health at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He's the co-founder of the Gapminder Foundation, which promotes a fact-based worldview by converting international statistics into compelling 
and interactive graphics. It's really quite amazing. He's been an advisor to the World Health Organization and UNICEF. He's a leader in global health. He's been an invaluable advisor to us at the Global Poverty Project because the passion he brings to facts. And today he'll be speaking about the current state of extreme poverty in the world and the barriers we need to overcome to end extreme poverty. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Hans Rosling. Thank you. Thank you. I hear many people when they see this graph saying, oh, if you end poverty, you will destroy the planet. Look, it's 7 billion people growing like this, the world population, you know. It has to stop. You have to accept that children die. <laughs> we hear people saying that. Now, the problem is not their morale. The problem is that they are wrong. This is not what is happening. In fact, this is what is happening. World population growth is just about to level off between 9 to 10 billion. How could I know that? When you count the people, it goes like this. Because I watch and I follow where people are done, in the bedroom. <laughs> That's how you can follow the future. That's how you can follow the future. In the past, long ago, many hundred years ago, father and mother got six children. And why didn't the population grow? It was because, tragically, four of these children died in infections and malnutrition. This was the old balance. People died in ecological balance with nature. Why did it start to grow about 200 years ago? It was not that people got more children. They still got, on average, six. It was that only two died. And it was the surviving children, indeed, that initiated and caused this population growth. But where are we heading? Of course we are heading to the new balance, where father and mother get two children and don't have to bury any children, the worst thing that can happen in your life. So how far have we come? How far have we come from having six children to having two children? What is the average fertility rate of the world? The most important number that everyone must know. It was six in 1800, 1950 it was five. We want it to be two. What is it today? And this is the London School of Economics. <laughs> is it 4.5? Is it 3.5? Is it 2.5? We know this. It's very easy to count the number of children. You do sensors. You knock the door like this. Door swings open. All the kids come out to see what it is. You count them one, two, three, four. <laughs> it's not like economics, you know. It's very easy. We know that it is 2.5 children per woman. Ain't that an enormous change? We fail to recognize the enormous progress done, as we also fail to see the enormous challenge that remains. We have to balance those two things, you know, to be able to, be able to understand where we are going. So why is the population still growing then, if we almost have two children per woman? We have two billion children today. That is not forecasting to increase. We will still have 2 billion children by the end of this century. There's about 2 billion people between 15 and 30. I see some of them here in the room, yes. And then we have this 30 to 45, and we have, we have the group here, 45 to... That's you, Bill. You are here. <laughs> eh? And then we have... This is me up there. Eh? I'm 60 plus, you know. So, so why will it grow? How can the population grow if the number of kids are not growing? I never see birth announcement, a 32-year-old is born. It's sort of a magic. It's a filling up effect. The old die, the other grow up, and they get two billion children. 
They all die, they grow up, and they get two billion children. And that's how we will become, you know, in 2059 billion. With the filling up, the breaking distance from when the number of children stops growing until the population stops growing is one lifetime. And there's nothing we can do about it. We have to plan for nine billion children. But back now to this, how really do we know? What has happened? This is my favorite graph. Number of children per woman here. Small families, one, two, three. Large families, six, seven, eight. Every bubble is a country. And here, the child mortality. 100 out of 1,000 dying. That's 10%, 20%, 30%. Every third child dying. 1961. The time of decolonization, the start of eight. Look here, Tanzania was up here. 250. Every fourth child was dying. Thailand was up here. Large families. Has the world changed? Indeed, it has. I can start this and you will see what has happened in the world. Child mortality has been coming down, but it has to come down to a certain level and then the family size will decrease. And they rush this way and they come over and almost all are here. This is why the average is 2.5. You can see it. There are huge populations, billions of people that has less than two children per woman. That sort of balance off why they still are some who have very large families. And indeed, there are six or seven billions here. I heard that Bill was especially concerned and worried about Nigeria, which is out there. Eh? And you have Afghanistan there, not strangely, and you have Congo there. The countries with the fastest population growth, the big countries with the fastest population growth is Afghanistan and Congo. Death cause population growth. Death caused population growth. It's contraintuitive. Eh? Let me go back and show you Tanzania and, and Thailand, two countries which I have worked in and which I very much like and appreciate. We go back to 1961. We ask for trails here, and then you rush them back and look, the progress. So Tanzania today is just like Thailand 1971. All this, I heard BBC saying tomorrow, this morning to you, it's hopeless in Africa. Hopeless at all. It's good progress in Africa. Hopeless is by the native Indians in the Caribbean. That's hopeless. They were all killed. It's very, very tragically. That's hopeless. Africa is doing relatively fine. They were in the end. They are coming down here. And look, some African countries, Ghana is already here. If I would split Ghana, I would split Ethiopia. The upper quintile, the best off, are already here. In Addis Ababa, it's two and a half child per woman today. The better off in Ghana is already there. We have come down with child mortality and then the population growth is diminishing. Now, we have to honor this school and we have to talk about money also. Eh? <laughs> so so if, I, if I then would go over here and I would show you the same thing with, with, with money per person, income per person here, and child mortality. You saw it was those who had low income that had high child mortality, and this is what has happened over the years from 1960. As, as child mortality falls, they get richer. But can you see how successful countries are to get down child mortality, even at relatively low income in the countries? That's the reason I'm standing on this stage, and not an economist. Today, Improved health precede economic growth. Today, small child families precede uh, economic growth. It's good to invest in health and impossibility for family planning. Now, I can show you also the income distribution. 
because we know that even in countries like, like Tanzania and in India, we have one part which is relatively wealthy and large parts who are not. This is now income per person, $1 a day, $10 a day, $100 a day. These are the peoples. OECD is there. The green anaconda here is Latin America. You have all sorts of incomes in Latin America. This Africa, this East Asia, South Asia, 1970, when I was a student. It was like that. It was a big hump of developing world. But look what has happened. Population has grown and billions have got out of poverty. The sad thing is we still have one and a half billion in poverty. We percent this falling, number is maintained. We have to get everyone across this line, which is the noble goal of your, of your project. So what, what can we expect? How can we understand this? Well, we are... Nine, uh, seven billions today, but we will be two billions more. There will be one billion more in Africa. There will be one billion more in Asia. Eh? And the poverty line is a challenge where it's growing. Poverty is quite easy to understand. It's lack of food, lack of clothes, lack of shelter, lack of school. Eh? And that is the determinants of health, which you can help up with vaccination and other things. People want to get over this. And they know very well. This is one of the most important to eliminate poverty. Cassava. The best converter of sunshine to food in this world. No other plant. is the fifth staple crop of mankind. No other can convert sunshine to so many calories per hectare. But it's getting sick. Cassava is getting sick. It's one of the major crops in Africa. Eh? And never, I spent 20 years research on the, on the nutritional effects of this crop. Never have I seen such a lot of interest of the young women as their agronomist and researcher is standing there and discussing how they can de get disease-free cassava. It's very visionary of Gates Foundation to invest in healthy cassava because that is what is needed. People need food. If you read the Bible, go to Matthew 6:11. Our daily food give us today. It's my favorite line in the Bible. <laughs> this sometimes can look nice. This is ugly, 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 ugly. It's women having to spend hours every day going and fetch food, food uh, water and firewood. Huh? What is economic growth? This is economic growth. <laughs> the two ball bearings there are the best place ball bearings in the world, in the wheelbarrow of an African woman. Can you see how her uh, productivity increased? She says ball bearing. That's out of poverty. <laughs> poverty line is about ball bearings. Swedish invention. Huh? <laughs> we have to brag sometimes. Huh? People think, BBC said this morning, do you have to educate the poor? No, it's more important to listen to the poor. It's more important to listen. This is a woman we did a lot of research for, and she told us happily on her way to the market, thank you for the school, aid paid for the books, government for the teacher. Huh? Thank you for health. Vaccines and malaria nets keep my child healthy. Thank you, World Bank, for investment in the road. I can reach further. And human rights and freedom, I need them. So I can make the priorities, which is best. My husband is in town working so we can build a house. Huh? Credit is good. Microcredit bought us my, the bicycle. So I didn't have to, to save for it, you know. Now I can reach further. Market is good. I rather like employment. Doesn't matter if the investor is white or yellow, as long as he would give me a job. Huh? They're quite favorable to all, all, all sorts of investments in Africa, which can help uh, alleviate the poverty. Information is good. The cell phone was magic. And she has a dream. She dreams 
about electricity, mill, and fertilizer. And this is not what the aid activists often think about. People really want electricity. They want a mechanical mill, and they want fertilizer, because fertilizer increases their productivity. And then they don't have to cultivate so big areas, and then they will catch more carbon dioxide with the forest. It's not intuitive what is the best thing to invest in. You really have to analyze. Huh? So this is more or less the challenge we have in front of us. That woman wants to get out of poverty. It's she who will get out of poverty. We can only help her. There are 400 million children in Africa today. 100 million is one box here. There are 200 million who are in your age group. There are 200 million who are between uh, 30 and 45. There is 100 million in Bill's age group, and there is 100 million in my age group. <laughs> that is Africa today. Imagine that from tomorrow, from this night, uh, women in Africa get only two children, and they survive. What would happen? Well, unfortunately, as always, the old will die. The rest will grow up, get 15 years older, and they will get the same number of children. Then, next 15-year period, the old will die, the others grow up, and they get 400 million children. And then, more people start to die, the others grow up, and they get 400 million children. And then these ones die, and they grow up, and in 60 years from now, Africa have 2 billion people. No way you can avoid it. We are planning for 200 billion people in Africa out of poverty. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hans. Your insights are truly incredible, and the way you communicate really rocks everyone in their audience. So thank you so much. I think this is wrong. You can use it with toilet paper roll at home, and you can <laughs> check it. But it really works. I'll, I'll remember that one. It's good. <laughs> Our next speaker truly needs no introduction. He's a man of great humility and impact, and we can honestly say the world would not be what it is today without him. He and his wife, Melinda, have turned their attention from transforming our communication technology to transforming the lives of the extreme poor. And the impact they and the team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are having around the world is truly extraordinary. When Bill Gates moved from Microsoft to the Foundation three many years ago, he said that there are three magical elements about what he does. He said the first one is opportunities for big breakthroughs, such as discovering new vaccines that can save millions of lives. The second one, he said, was bringing the focus and urgency of the business world to build teams of smart people focusing on long-term solutions. And the final one was bringing smart, creative people together and giving them resources and guidance to make a difference. At the Global Poverty Project, it has been our absolute pleasure to be in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation throughout the past year. Let's make Bill Gates feel very welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Well, good afternoon. 
It's tough to speak after Hans. He's the, the most articulate speaker uh, on these topics. And uh, it's very important because helping the poorest is kind of common sense. But I think a lot of people who start down that path and want to do it, they're intimidated by the complexity. Uh, the economic figures, the disease figures, the aid figures. It's all very hard to get through. Uh, so I encourage you to go up to gapminder.org. It's got a lot of uh, his speeches there. Uh, and I certainly use those to stay up to date and to really come up with the ways that we can describe uh, what exactly what it is we need to do uh, based on our, our, our caring for our, our fellow uh, mankind. Uh, I didn't know if Hans was going to handicap me by leaving me this rickety structure uh, <laughs> During my speech, if I get too excited, it might, uh, billions of people will collapse uh, in front of your eyes. Well, I just finished my uh, annual letter uh, that talks about the foundation success stories and, and some of the challenges going forward. And it's fairly timely because the, the message of my letter is, uh, I think, identical to what the Global Pro- Poverty Project is all about. Uh, and that is that it's very easy to lose sight of the conditions of the very poorest. Uh, They aren't here amongst our midst. Uh, There are many things going on in terms of Eurozone crisis, budget cutbacks, that would make it easy to turn inward and actually reduce uh, the financing that has led to so much success. And the answer to this is, uh, first of all, to remind people about the need, uh, which is your 1.4 billion presentation, but also to remind them that Uh, we are making incredible progress. Uh, This is something that uh, Hans's animations uh, show us, and in my letter I talk about a number of these success stories. Uh, The two big areas our foundation works in uh, are uh, health and agriculture, and that's because those are so fundamental uh, to getting out of poverty, so fundamental to creating a human condition uh, that is is basic. you know, we can look at this through a number of figures. We can look at it through childhood deaths. And uh, we've got that number down to about 8 million a year, uh, but that's still an incredibly tragic number. It's actually pretty amazing. You have disasters around the world uh, that in a, in a typical year will kill well under 100,000. And yet the response to those uh, is even greater than to the you know, year in, year out, dying of that 8 million. The 8 million happen one at a time. Uh, in a sense, it's you know, harder to relate. They're in different conditions. Uh, there are diseases that were long ago eliminated from the rich world, like uh, malaria. And so it doesn't, unless we're careful, unless people like yourself get out and tell the story, it doesn't get uh, very much attention. So health is big. Uh, I think we can take that 8 million and cut it in half. Uh, We're going to have to take the vaccines we have and get them out into broader distribution. And we're going to have to uh, uh, invent new vaccines. Now, the other topic that I'll uh, give you a a few examples on here is agriculture. Uh, Agriculture really affects the poorest. Uh, After all, most of the poorest are uh, people with very small farms who barely grow enough to feed their family. In fact, in tough years... Uh, They are extremely malnourished. And so health ties very closely to uh, to agriculture. Your productivity ties very closely to everything else. 
Uh, the reason why kids die of diarrhea and pneumonia is because their bodies aren't very strong. If they had had good nutrition, the death rate would be dramatically lower. Uh, if parents didn't want their kid on the farm, uh, their uh, availability to go off to school would be far, far better. And when you suffer from diseases and you don't have enough nutrition, your ability to ever develop your skills, to develop your mental capabilities, is greatly, greatly reduced. And so we're holding back these poor countries, not just by the death rate, but by all of the sickness and and lack of development uh, that those children suffer. Agriculture, of course, in the rich world is you know, kind of a, uh, a small thing, you know, only a few percent of the people working on it. Uh, this chart here shows that how in the United States uh, in 1850, uh, about two-thirds of the people worked on the farm. You know, today it's under 2%. And the United States is a huge food exporter. This was not achieved by getting the Chinese to do the farming for us. We actually do a lot of farming for them. And uh, thank goodness we have something to send in, in that direction. Uh, those boats you know, go back empty uh, quite a bit, but uh, farm goods are one of those things. Uh, but if you go to Uganda, it's uh, 75%. Even India, uh, 56%. So this, this is not only the picture of the poor in these countries, it's the, the picture of the population in general. And so you've got to imagine their productivity is, is dramatically less than what we're used to. Another key point is that uh, they wake up every day thinking about food. Food is a huge part of their economic uh, existence. If uh, They worry, will they have enough food? Now, you know, in, in countries like the U.S. and the U.K., food, even here we're including the amount you'd spend on the restaurant, the prepared food, all sorts of things that aren't uh, all that basic. As you move down in income levels... Uh, all the way to, say, uh, Kenya and India, then food is jumping up uh, and getting up to over a third, almost a half of the budget. Uh, and these are average figures, so for the very poorest in those countries, it would be even, even worse than that. Uh, you've got all sorts of uncertainty that comes into the food system because of weather and supply chain and uh, crop diseases and things of that nature. And so it still is the central fact of existence is uh, can, I, can I get enough food? And that certainly takes away from, can I send my kids to school? Can I pay those school fees? And so many other things uh, that you'd like uh, people to be able to uh, focus on. Now, the food story uh, is another amazing story. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, 60s and 70s, there was a, uh, in the development community, there was a lot of pessimism uh, And what they were seeing is that population growth rates and food productivity rates uh, made it look like there was going to be mass starvation. And in fact, what happened uh, was good news on both counts. Uh, That is, uh, what Hans talked about in terms of people choosing to have smaller families, that started to kick in uh, and was extremely positive. And... Uh, the so-called Green Revolution, new crop varieties uh, that a a brilliant scientist named Norman Borlaug started down in a a maize and wheat center in Mexico, those seed varieties became available, and Pakistan and India were able to double their grain output during those key decades. And so, in fact, not only 
uh, what, did they avoid the mass starvation? The number of calories per person actually went up during that period. And that, of course, helps with mental development. It helps with uh, avoiding uh, sickness. And so it was a very good period of time, uh, very different than was predicted. The most extreme example of this is actually China because they waited until 1980 to create a farming system where there were incentives to use these new seeds. Uh, and so by then, they uh, really had the foundation to understand how it would be done. And so farming productivity in that country in a 12-year period doubled, uh, which freed up labor and had a really phenomenal effect that you see in, the, in their economic figures today. So this food story was going very well. Uh, in about the year 2000, the donors withdrew uh, support. They hoped that market mechanisms would push things forward. Uh, they hadn't focused on the fact that in Africa, uh, yields had, had not gone up as much. And so what we see is that uh, prices had gone down, and now uh, somewhat they're going back up. And that's what happens. If you, let, if you don't get supply increase, then demand increase goes up because as people get richer, they want to eat meat. Uh, they want to eat more, but, but even more importantly, they eat meat, which is an indirect way of eating more grain. And so uh, prices have gone up uh, quite a bit. Uh, here's a farmer. Uh, Hans talked about cassava. There's some nice cassava. In fact, in his picture, that woman on the bike, she had, she had some uh, cassava uh, tubers on the back of her bike. You don't eat it directly. It actually has to be prepared. It's called tapioca in rich countries, if you, if you see it at all. One of the great things about it is that when you have drought um, conditions, this is the crop that will last it out the best. And so it's often grown as a backup crop where you'll grow, your, say, your, your maize, your corn, hoping that works out and you can sell that. But at least you'll be able to feed your kids with this. Uh, now, as was mentioned, uh, we've got some crop disease, uh, disease coming in. This is a brown streak disease. Uh, it's about as ugly as it can be. That, that cassava is completely inedible. Uh, and so it's very sad when you dig up and you, you see that's there. Uh, particularly if it's a bad year where this, this was the backup that you were going to take advantage of. Now, it turns out that there, are, there is um, a scientific innovation uh, that lets us change the cassava crop uh, so that it's not uh, susceptible to this and one other disease. And so we've got a generation of African scientists coming along. Uh, we have in a couple different universities, one in South Africa, one in Ghana, uh, 100 PhDs, uh, 500 master students uh, that are African scientists that will be able to do this kind of work in Africa. Uh, Joseph, uh, Dr. Joseph Nunguru here, uh, is actually doing his work in Tanzania. He was offered jobs for about three times what the Tanzanians were willing to pay him. Uh, he's put up with a lot because he's a pioneer of getting labs in and doing this type of work there, but he's... Uh, you know, very committed to it. And what you see here in the lab are the very first uh, uh, tissue culture work where when you challenge them with these new disease types, uh, they survive. Now, it'll take another three years, even if things go well, uh, to get those out into the field. But, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, the demand is going to be there. Uh, that's going to make a huge difference. Let me move on now and talk a, a little bit about uh, some of the health progress. Um, you know, we've got some new vaccines uh, that we needed to raise money for. It was actually here in London last June. We had a big pledging conference and raised uh, all the money that was needed. So even in spite of tough economic times, governments, uh, including UK, Norway, 
a lot of uh, uh, great uh, commitments made there that will allow the vaccines to be affordable. One vaccine effort, the one that uh, is, is very big right now, and it's the thing I spend the most time on, is the polio eradication. Uh, we've only eradicated one disease in the history of mankind, one human disease, and that smallpox, uh, which the last natural case of was back in 1977. That's a big deal because it killed millions of, of people a year, and now we don't even have to vaccinate. Uh, polio, the, this campaign got started in 1987, uh, but at the time, 300,000 children a year were being uh, crippled or, or killed. It's actually a tougher disease to eradicate than smallpox because actually with smallpox, uh, everybody who gets the disease shows characteristic symptoms. And we had a, a vaccine that you know, it was kind of painful and it created this scar. Uh, a single dose of that vaccine would make you immune from getting the disease. With polio, uh, most of the cases are invisible. And so if we see one case, it, can, it might have spread a long distance. It takes us a while to detect it. You only detect it through the symptoms. And the symptoms are typically what's called uh, uh, flaccid paralysis, where the legs, a no, uh, child no longer has control over the legs. What happens is the virus gets up into your spinal cord, and it's killing the nerve cells that are able to control your legs. If it moves up a little further, you can't control your muscles uh, in your diaphragm, so you can't breathe. And so in, in the United States and the UK, the images from the 1950s and 60s of polio were these wards where people were in our lungs because they were using that mechanical device to breathe for those people since uh, they couldn't control their, their diaphragms. And so the, this quest to get rid of polio, it means giving these drops that's an oral polio vaccine. You have to take it about four times to be protected, and you've got to cover virtually all the children. And so the countries that do a good job of vaccination, they got rid of this disease pretty quickly. And by the year 2000, we were down uh, to just about 3,000 cases. But we were left with the toughest countries, um, uh, India had never gotten rid of it in 2000. Nigeria never had. Pakistan never had. Other countries would get rid of it and it would tend to spread back into them from those three countries. Uh, today we have 10 countries still with polio left. But the phenomenal uh, breakthrough uh, from 2011 is that India, which was viewed as being the toughest of, of any of the countries, the number of children, the amount they move around, the bad sanitation system that helps the disease spread. Uh, we've gone a year now without a single case uh, in India. And it took mind-blowing... <laughs> what it took to achieve this is pretty incredible because in the north of India, uh, in Bihar, you have this flooding that takes place. And so families move around, and they're very hard to find. If you have the vaccinators from one cast, they often aren't that good at uh, finding out how many kids are in the household of the other cast. Uh, you really had to do um, some incredible things. So this is actually in Bihar. These are uh, people going for the, the uh, polio vaccination campaign. Uh, so now that's done. Uh, India has to keep vaccinating so it doesn't spread back into their country. But the really top problems are going to be uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, that's one epidemic, and a number of countries in Africa, but primarily Nigeria. 
those are still the two that have never gone a year without a case. In fact, both of those have had quite a few cases. Pakistan actually had a significant increase in 2011 uh, over the year before. So we've got to, the donors are somewhat fatigued. Uh, the people who give these drops, the people who get these drops, they're somewhat fatigued. Uh, but we've got to re-energize them and, and push ahead. Uh, and that's why, you know, this weekend I'm meeting with the, the Pakistani vaccination people. I go to Nigeria every year. Uh, and we're thinking through how we use new tools, how we uh, can get out, contract better. Uh, we do have some parents who refuse the vaccine because they think maybe it's to sterilize uh, the girls or it's some uh, Western plot. And we have to deal with rumors like that and make sure that they don't, uh, if you get enough refusals, you, it absolutely stymies you. And, and part of the reason, way we've reduced that is we're working with uh, the Muslim, what they're called the traditional religious leaders up in uh, northern Nigeria, and they've been really great in helping us with this. In fact, uh, even in Pakistan, they have ceasefires where the polio vaccination campaign can come in. And so uh, there's a lot of reason to think, even in those tough countries, uh, we'll be able to uh, get the success that we want. So, I, you know, I think the, the bottom line on this is there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Uh, innovation is on our side. Uh, you know, I'm always meeting with the scientists who are doing things like the AIDS vaccine, the TB vaccine, the malaria vaccine. And now they're getting great funding uh, so that they're absolutely full speed ahead in, in doing that work. Uh, in the agricultural area, there is room for substantial additional productivity. In fact, if all we did was get African productivity to be half of what you have in Europe or, or in the United States, uh, it would be a dramatic increase. You know, of, those billion, of the people who worry about food all the time, that doubling in productivity uh, would take three quarters of them and, and solve their problem. And so, you know, really, uh, we need to keep doing what we've been doing. And the only thing I think that potentially stands in the way of that is this turning inward uh, because of these financial difficulties. Uh, if people think that aid is spent corruptly and doesn't have an impact, uh, they won't stand behind it. Uh, if they think that aid leads to just population growth so that uh, problems become more intractable, education problems, stability problems, environmental problems, you know, they won't be behind it. In fact, the opposite is true. So if, if any of those causes animate you, what's going on here, even if it's not the mortality or the, any of that stuff, you know, these are exactly the things that will allow us to get to a, a stable position with our environment and uh, get rid of the, the instabilities that, that create so many problems. And so there's a lot of myths about aid. Uh, there's a lot of invisibility about these problems. Uh, there's a lot of reluctance to believe these uh, good news stories. Uh, the best way of all of uh, dealing with that, of course, is to, to get uh, people to visit. Uh, my wife, Melinda, just last week was with some senators uh, from the United States senators, uh, six of them, uh, only one of which had been to Africa before. And, uh, they came, uh, spent three days, saw a lot of things, and I can guarantee you uh, that none of those senators are going to vote against agricultural aid or vaccine aid for Africa in the future. Uh, no matter which party uh, they came in, they, you know, they got to meet the people and hear the woman say, hey, when my crops come in well, I, 
I let my kids go to school. I pay the school fees. And you know, that really touched them in a pretty deep way. Uh, we can't get everybody to Africa. We should get more uh, than we do. Uh, but uh, you can be the people who bring the good news story uh, to uh, your compatriots. Uh, the UK is actually quite exemplary. The generosity and aid uh, that the UK is providing uh, in tough times, uh, the commitment to get up to the 0.7% uh, is fantastic. But I know, uh, you know, as the economic challenges are more evident to people, as some of these uh, other cuts come through, that is going to be questioned. Uh, and so uh, reminding people that it's only uh, about 2% of the budget and it really has an effect, uh, that's going to be absolutely important. And by maintaining uh, this UK commitment, it gives us a chance. You know, We're working in Germany, we're working in France, we're working in the United States, another tough one, uh, to try and get that generosity uh, to go up. So you know, I applaud uh, your commitment to this cause. It's one that uh, we will be successful, but we need your best work to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. You make an incredibly compelling case for, the inve- for strong investment in agriculture and also ongoing investment in public health focused on vaccines and immunisations. Let's give him another round of applause. Thank you very much. In the interest of time, we're going to enter into a very brief question and answer period for questions for Bill and Hans. We have time for a couple of questions, one from the audience and also one from online. So if there's anyone in the, in the audience who wants to take a question, yes, sir, um, if you can stand up, introduce yourself, keep your question brief, and also direct it to a particular person, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, Bill, um, Andrew Zappa. Um, I'm a new Global Poverty Project uh, ambassador. Um, Bill, following Professor Rosling's presentation, we saw the importance of having reliable data to inform good policy making. What are you and your foundation doing in order to contribute towards the creation, accessibility of timely and robust data to track the world's progress towards things such as MDG1? Yeah, it's disappointing that the data is is, uh, not all that well known, and what is known, it takes a long time uh, for it to get published. So take, for example, all the great money that's been given for malaria bed nets. Uh, We actually don't have... Uh, really good feedback yet on how effective those have been in various countries. And we need that data. We need that data to adjust uh, what we're doing. We need that data to have donors understand that the impact has been there. Uh, There's a methodology of interviewing households that uh, is used in most of these poor countries. And so if we just digitize once that's gathered, get it online, get the statisticians to be a little less worried about making a preliminary publication, telling them, yes, you can come back and make your nice adjustments, but let's at least get the raw data out there uh, fairly quickly. When it comes to attributing death to a particular disease, that's very, very hard. In fact, there's going to be a uh, dispute here in the months ahead where one group is going to say that malaria deaths are 1.2 million, another is going to say they're 0.8 million. 
uh, because attributing particularly adult deaths to that or not to that is, is pretty hard. So we're investing in people like Chris Murray, uh, who's got a, a data-driven group. Uh, Hans has really pushed for people to make their data public so you can combine it, visualize it, see who has the best data. He's made some very good progress on that. Uh, but this is a, this, it's the lifeblood of our activity is data. In fact, when I go into polio meetings, I'm just ruthless about where is the data uh, because this, this vaccine coverage data, we haven't done a good job and, and uh, we absolutely need that. So it's, in many ways, it's, it's of importance. Hans? There's an additional thing to say. Even if we have the data, some impacts are very long-term. That's been shown very clearly that almost half of the decrease of child mortality can be attributed to female education. Imagining when both boys and girls can go to school, you will have an impact of child mortality 10 to 20 to 30 years later because then they know and they how to use the mosquito net. Women are empowered. They can make decisions on vaccine. So there are both these things. We need the data, but we can also not think that an aid and an investment a certain period. You also said get the harvest so I can get my kids to school. They learn in school. They can start a business. Many of these things are long-term, and that's why the woman on the bicycle showed you all these things she needs. She needed everything, and I very cunningly, I made them red to the left and blue to the right. So everyone had something they can pick there, you know. <laughs> but, but, but don't take that fight, is microcredit better than vaccines? Is school better than governance? No. Get it all, you know, as soon as possible. And that's the, 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 the multiplicable impacts of not having a child who is disabled by polio will help that family for the next 40 years. Mm. So we must understand both, yes, we want the data to see what's happening, but we also have to understand that we can't see the full impact of an investment now, which will come over 40 years. Thank you. We've got one question online from a gentleman by the name of Nadim Javid, who says, why is eradicating polio so important in this day and age to build? Well, the key is that if we give up uh, and we stop spending this huge amount of money we are to do all these campaigns, then the disease will go back and you'll have 300,000 kids a year who are being either killed or paralyzed. And so all the money you spent to date will be for naught. And even rich countries will have to be careful that there will be some spread into rich countries, not a lot, uh, but that overall burden is horrific. And so it's as though at the end the cost per case avoided looks uh, extremely high, but what you're actually avoiding is all those cases out into the future. So when you can do eradication, it's a very good deal. You have to pick the few that you can really get it done. And you know we, we, we picked this one, but the, the payoff uh, will be you know, over a decade and 3 million kids who are able to walk. We'll take one final question from the audience. Yes, ma'am. Could you please stand up and introduce yourself? Uh, Sorry, we'll we'll pass you the microphone. Thank you. Hello, my name is Gillian Graham. I'm a um, Global Poverty Ambassador from Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I would like to um, ask um, both of you to comment on um, just uh, the reality of climate change and how that, uh, in terms of the improvements in agriculture that you have invested in, um, 
And I'm just wondering uh, that climate change actually can, can undermine things in such a chaotic and unpredictable way. And I wonder if this is a bit soul-destroying, really, um, for some of the projects that you know have to date been successful. And I'm wondering then, does that then put an onus on um, your own foundation and, and us in the Western world as to how we address this problem, which is going to be probably a long-term one? Thank you. Yeah, the climate change is something I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at. I back a lot of scientists who are involved with it. It's a you know, real thing, very serious problem. The good news is that it's not, it's not a problem that happens overnight. That is, it's over a period of many decades. And so what, what do we need to do? Uh, well, for the rich world, the imperative to not emit CO2 is very, very strong. The amount of CO2 emission coming out of the poorer world is so small that they shouldn't be constrained. You know, they, they should, um, they, they, the I, irony is that they will suffer for it. That is, temperate zone, the negatives of climate change, even in the 2060s, 2070s, is very small. It's the tropical zones around the equator where you get uh, the higher temperatures and the, the weather variability is, is very bad. So essentially the rich world, which is in the temperate zones, has created another problem, uh, which they already have plenty of for the tropical areas. Now, in terms of mitigation, um, you know, they, you, they want to have um, crops that can deal with drought um, and, and crops that can deal with very high temperature. And there's very little research going into that. Uh, absolutely, climate change will reduce crop productivity. There's quite a range of possibilities in terms of how bad that is. Uh, for some crops, it could be as, as bad as a third, but it looks like there's varieties that, that deal with heat in a much better way. Uh, it's under-researched. You know, we're, we're putting money into that. Um, so it, it, money, money from the rich world should be spent there, the good news is it's the same type of thing you want to do for farmers pretty much to deal with weather as it exists today. The resilience, storage, ability to get water, those things are, uh, match up pretty well. So it just highlights how awful it is that we've underinvested in agriculture. I would warn for a lot of tactics, blaming a lot of problems on climate change. Drought has been there for a long time. Population is growing. I haven't seen any severe effects of climate change so far in the world. I am very worried about the severe change that can come in one to two to three generations. Today, it could be better to finance a coal-driven electricity production in the poor countries in Africa to get electricity out to all houses so that you can get a fall in child mortality, small families, people can read, they can improve their agriculture, they can get fertilizers from that electricity production, they decrease the area cultivated, they get more forest. You, you see, the fantastic thing is when heart, brain, and wallet can work together. <laughs> you know, and the bedroom. And the bedroom, yeah. <laughs> You see, you see, this is why I like the Gates Foundation, because they have a good heart, they have a good brain, and they combine it with a wallet, you know. That's when you have the effect. Ladies and gentlemen, will you join me in thanking Hans and Bill? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.